Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is the Netflix TV show called The Sandman, which means, wow, this one goes all over the place. We're going to be talking about 19th century German chemists. No, really. We're going to be talking about the comic book renaissance in D.C., in the 1980s, we're going to be talking about some of the oldest writing in Western history and Greek and Roman mythology as well. Wow, we're going all over the place this time round. And I wanted to say that this is another example of a request. Simone Allen, I have to be honest, you've haunted me. I felt bad that I haven't come back to this because... What happened was you sent me a Twitter message, and it's worth pointing out to everybody, hi, I'm at Jem Daduchu online on Twitter. You can let me know what you think of any episode. I love discussing stuff with people online, and also I love to hear people's ideas. And Simone, you reached out to me, and we had a sort of brief little chat about it, and you actually gave me a bunch of ideas. Now, now, some of them were a bit too sort of small in scale for me to be able to do a whole episode on. For the record, OA, I loved the first series of the OA, and I can't remember quite how profoundly disappointed I was with the second TV series. It really did seem to feel to run out of ideas in the second series, and dot dot dot, that's probably why it got cancelled by Netflix. But anyway, that's a different story, but one of the things you suggested was The Sandman, and I said, oh, that's a good idea, and that was before Christmas of 2022. So I am sorry. This is why I've said you kind of haunted me because in the back of my mind, it's like, I need to get back to this one. I need, I need to sort of like write this and, and look into this. And then I felt even worse because when I started opening this up and like I did in the introduction, say, oh my goodness, this is going to be firing me all over the places. It's the perfect kind of condensed histories type episode. So Simone, thank you so much. I apologise that it's taken me so long to do this, and I hope you really like this episode. Reach out to me again, let me know what you think, or, I don't know, send me some hate mail or something. I, I again, I apologise it's taken a while. But to everybody else, it does. this does prove, it, sometimes it does take time, but I do genuinely read every single message sent to me on Twitter. It's all good, okay? Sorry I'm not on everything else, but hey, this takes up so much time, plus I've got a day job, and also I've got a family, 
And, you know, sometimes I might actually not want to do any of those things and perhaps just sit down and watch some TV. Actually, I do need to watch TV and movies and play video games so I can make more of these, so I have opinions on certain things. So, anyway, I don't know quite where I was going with that, but off we go. The Sandman is a Netflix show starring Tom Sturridge, who plays Dream, who is the Sandman, also known as Morpheus. And when I say Dream... His full name is Dream of the Endless, which is only mentioned in passing in the TV show, but is absolutely key to the comic book, which this is all based on, which was created by Neil Gaiman, who is somebody who I've done previously. He was kind enough to retweet one of our things at one point. So thank you very much for that, Neil. Big fan of yours. And also I saw you in the documentary about H.P. Lovecraft, for example. So you do keep intersecting with my interests and love your writing and I love your comic books. And generally I'm a fan, but I'm not going to be some weird to like creepy super fan or anything like that. Just saying huge respect if you ever hear this. Here's somebody else who you make them feel sort of warm and fuzzy in sometimes a very spooky way. Thank you very much. Okay, fine. So Neil Gaiman created The Sandman in 1989. Except, did he? Because what happened was, and I found this quite interesting, is there was previously a 1970s version of The Sandman, and that was the thing that Neil Gaiman was sort of interested in. And so he went to them and it basically bounced around for years until eventually they came back and said, you can absolutely do a Sandman, but what you can't do is the old 70s one. But after that, you do whatever you want. It's just the only restriction is you can't rehash. After that, you can come up with anything you want. And so, yes, technically, there are some comic geeks saying out there, I think it'll find it three days, Neil Gaiman, blah, blah, blah. And you're technically right. But in terms of what we're talking about here, the inspiration of the TV show, it's absolutely from the Neil Gaiman comic, which ran from 89 to 96. Now, I'm actually going to go back to that in, in a little bit. But instead, like I said, we got Tom Sturridge there. I also have to give a special shout out to Gwendoline Christie. Yes. Brienne of Tarth, you know, she had this sort of like, that was a breakout role in Game of Thrones. You know, she's been Captain Phasma in the new Star Wars movie. She's been all over the place, and I mean that in a good way, because she seems a nice person. She's obviously a very talented actress. And obviously, for these rather tall ladies who are, you know, she's just, she was never going to play the ingenue role. She was never going to be, you know, that kind of young 20-something in a bikini that everybody's lusting after. But do you know what? She's a real woman, and she's got her own thing to do, and she's basically carved out her niche to play slightly more unusual women. And on this occasion, boy, does she break the mold, because she plays Lucifer Morningstar. You know, Lucifer, Satan, which of course you tend to consider is male, and quite often you're going to think of as bright red with back wings and horns and all that other stuff. And no, Lucifer looks suspiciously like Wendling Christie in dark outfits with platinum blonde hair. But this is the thing, and, and indeed, we are now going into the kind of the mythological side of things. If you actually start reading who is Lucifer, he's a fallen angel. He wouldn't necessarily have bat wings and all that other stuff. He would have looked like another angel. It's just he's been away from God, which is not the same thing to being twisted into some kind of perverse demon or something like that. And 
seeing we are talking about mythology and we're talking about a creature that doesn't really have a sex or gender. We tended to talk about, you know, various gods as being he's and she's, but they're they're deities. They don't necessarily need to have the same parameters as a basic human being. So why not? Lucifer can be anything you want it to be, if indeed it actually exists in the first place. So what we've got is some really interesting casting. What they went for is who's the most interesting person for the role? Who's the most interesting person who can bring it to life? And then there's something even more interesting about the TV show. Because prior to space, and I've said this so many times, you basically can draw a line in the sand. You got the Sopranos. And with the Sopranos, after that, we get these high quality dramas that are ongoing. If you jump into the Sopranos halfway through season two, you will be lost. Who's this person? Why are they there? They seem to assume I need to have seen stuff previously. Now that's not the same as something like, let's take Starsky and Hutch from the 1970s. Generally, apart from soap operas, all kinds of entertainment prior to the late 1990s was like, yeah, so the topic is Starsky and Hutch. This episode, they're hunting down I don't know, a pickpocket. And in the next episode, they're hunting down an assassin. And you don't need to see them in order. Every week, they start off by getting together, then jumping into their car, and then blasting around, and maybe to a car chase or a shootout. And then at the end, they catch the guy, and then they move on to the next case. You can watch them in any order, and you can enjoy them in any way you want. And... What brilliant to say about the Sandman, and I know that some people were disappointed by it, but hey, why not do something different, or shall we say, defying expectations? Sandman does not have an overarching plot. You can watch it in any order you want. Most people watch it in the order that Netflix has put it on, but I would encourage you to just mix it up a bit. You're not going to miss out on anything, and it does mean, you know, like I mentioned with Gwendolyn Christie, she's not in every single episode, and it's not like, aha, I meet, meet you again. Last time you defeated me, this time I will blah blah blah. No, not, not at all. That's not how it works. So, it's a breath of fresh air. Yes, it's kind of fantastical. Are they superheroes? I mean, let's face it, it's a comic book, and they have weird non-human abilities, but then again, they're gods. And going back to what I said earlier, he's referred to as Dream, and actually in it, he's Dream of the Endless. And what's interesting is, in the Neil Gaiman-verse, rather than anything else created by various mythologies from the past, the Endless are seven entities, and these entities are older than the gods, and they are more powerful than the gods. So the interesting thing about the Sandman is... He is actually got more of an advantage over the devil than the other way round, which is a brilliant idea. There's a book by Robert A. Heinlein called Job, and basically he takes the idea of the book of Job from the Bible and sort of turns it into a kind of sci-fi fantasy book. It's a really interesting book. It's kind of sort of standard 70s sci-fi and fantasy, but it's one of these things which just picks away at it. And basically, Job ends up falling in with the devil and finding out that the devil is fundamentally not a bad guy. It's just he fundamentally disagrees with God and actually he points out, goes, look, everything good that's happened to you, it's because of me. Everything bad that's happened to you is because of God. The point is, and I would recommend you read the book, but at the end, I love this idea that basically Job goes with the devil and God and they're in this extra dimension 
And the two of them bow towards their God, their creator. And Job asks, goes, well, who created, you know, your God? And they went, we don't know. Maybe there's another layer above that. And there's another layer above that. And this is the thing. Once you get to the area of deities, it's meant to be beyond your comprehension. And whoever created you, well, they're going to know more about the world than who, who you are. Now, okay, that's your parents, and they always have kind of have an advantage, not necessarily because they're smarter than you, but just simply they've been around longer than you. They kind of know how life works. On that point, I'm going to share with you one of the most personal stories I'm ever going to be able to share with you on this podcast. I remember the day my first child was born, and just looking at this incredibly fragile little creature and being overwhelmed with this feeling of responsibility and love for him. And one of the first people I saw after his birth was my father. And I said to him, oh my God, now I understand how much you love me. So it's the same kind of thing I would imagine with, with this stuff. And one of the elements here is, of course, Neil Gaiman is playing with the idea of gods. And he's picking an old god, if you like, although when intertwining this with Judeo-Christianity, Christian ideas and things like that as well, monotheism, blah, blah, blah. But also mixing in ironically with polytheism and so yeah you can kind of get in trouble with the, with this stuff from time to time and ultimately look you believe what you want to believe if you are a heartfelt believer in christianity great good for you if that gives you solace that is the purpose of religion but then if you are you're probably not going to agree with muslims and you're not going to agree with hindus and whatever so I am, and I've said this before, I'm an atheist. That does not mean I show disrespect to all the other religions out there, all the religions out there. It's just, I think, on balance, there's probably nothing there. It all seems like a pretty crazy, mixed-up world. I don't think there's an awful lot of intelligent design going on here. But you, be you believe, you do you. And the thing worth remembering is if you're on my side going, yeah, I, I hear you, Jim, there are more believers in religions in the world than there aren't. So... You know, if you add up all the Buddhists, all the Muslims, all the Christians, all the Jews, all the Hindus, you know, let's pick sort of like some of the biggest groups there, there together, you're, you're talking about way over half of the world's population. And these people all believe in some kind of higher power, the fact that it's not just them, there are these sort of unknowables that, that human beings can't really sense. And I'm going to say it's a beautiful thing, which also has been spread throughout the whole of history. So it's sort of element of deity making. And I love the idea of dream of the endless and the sort of the endless being the almost gods of the gods kind of thing. But it obviously means that the Sandman himself is just kind of basically un untouchable. Now, obviously, one of the other names, which I mentioned in passing, was Morpheus. And also another one is Oneros. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. So Morpheus and Oneros are both kind of Greco-Roman names. So with with Morpheus, clearly that was something that has been around at the time of the ancient Greeks. But also, literally, Morpheus has been written about by Ovid, who is somebody who lived towards the end of the first century BC into the first century AD. Yeah, he's one of those annoying people that kind of like straddles millennia. And Ovid writes about Morpheus. So when I talk about history, it's like, well, this happened, and then this is when it's written about, etc. But what I find fascinating, truly fascinating when it comes to myths, is when was this stuff written down? And how did it evolve as well? So 
The Greeks had lots of stories about Morpheus, but the Romans added to it. And I'm not talking about a few years later. I'm talking about like five, six, seven hundred years later. They're adding stuff to it. So when we start criticizing Christianity as having evolved from the original scriptures and things like this, and it's like, well, one of my favorite facts is nowhere in the Bible does it say, church, you build this church, and this is how you pray in a church. The whole point of a church is to say we are all Christians together, and we're all going to celebrate the good word, which is an evolution from what actually the very first Christians would have done. If you took a, you know, one of the apostles and marched them into Westminster Abbey and said, what do you think? They wouldn't have a clue what's going on. They wouldn't understand any of the iconography. Um, they probably would have been quite surprised, but there's a massive crucifix. But anyway, so, look, I, I, I digress, but you can see this sort of like bars off all over the place. But but when it comes to Oneros, now that's really interesting, because Oneros was not so much a god, but more a kind of human form that appears in dreams. Now, Morpheus is obviously the god of sleep and the Sandman. You know, we, we talk about, Mr. Sandman, send me a dream. Make him the cutest that I've ever seen. Bum, 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 bum. All that kind of stuff. In other words, songs about the Sandman being a sort of dream maker, if you like. So with Oneros, there are references to it in Homer's Iliad, which I said, we get literally the oldest story in Western Europe. I've done a whole episode on Troy. I've talked about how, you know, was there even a Homer? So, I mean, it's definitely a Homer Simpson, but that's a different story. But yeah, so regardless, the point is these stories were written down, give or take, around about 700 BC. And they are talking about something older than this. And these are the bits that are perhaps not so well known and very rarely recreated in any of like the TV shows and movies around Troy. Because Zeus literally sends an Oneros that appears to Agamemnon in human form. So if you like, the Oneroses are multiple. They seem to be kind of ephemeral. They only last for a short amount of time. And they're there to trick, beguile, or send a message to people, perhaps beyond the grave or in their times. And you actually get things like Morpheus being mentioned in something else that's incredibly ancient. One of the most interesting... It's not a book because they, the books weren't created until the Roman era. But let's say one of the oldest, most interesting scriptures, writings from ancient Greece is Hesiod's Theogony. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now, Hesiod's the writer. Theogony is the title of the tract, is perhaps the best way to put it. But what's interesting about it is it's the genealogy of the gods. It's the family tree of the gods. And this was written down about the same time, or shortly afterwards, the Iliad. So what we've got is basically the lore, L-O-R-E, of the ancient Greek gods being formalized, crystallized by Hesiod. This is the closest thing we have to an ancient Greek religion Bible. Because up until then, clearly there were stories about, oh, this person was that person. And let's face it, Zeus impregnated a lot of women and, you know, had all kinds of offspring, shall we say. He was problematic in the Me Too world out there. But anyway, that's a different story. Having the genealogy, how they're interacting with each other. It, obviously, this is all made up. But what's interesting is the Oneroses, Oneroi, they were the sons of Nyx, N-Y-X. Who's Nyx? Nyx was the goddess of night. Now, that makes complete sense. You know, we got dreams and nighttime activities and then a night goddess. So all of this is pretty kind of obvious. But the Theogony predates the Old Testament and indeed, therefore, the New Testament of the Bible. And yet, this is a kind of religious scripture that had been created nearly 3,000 years ago, at least 2,500 years ago, which today in the 21st century is still being used. Now, we don't show it any kind of reverence because nobody's really following that religion anymore, but we're aware of the Greek myths and stories. Now, I've done stuff on Thor and I've talked about the Scandinavians. One of the most fun recent episodes I recorded, it was a while ago actually thinking about it, was the Giants episode talking about well, when we talk about myths, we tend to think of things like the ancient Greeks and the Scandinavians and other cultures as well. We don't tend to remember the various legends and myths and mythologies of the British Isles, which that's in that episode. Please feel free to, to listen back to that one. So I don't want to kind of repeat myself. But the Theogony is just one of these things where you've clearly got a human trying to almost map out the will of the gods, or in this case, literally the relationship of the gods. And we've been doing it ever since. 
And I just find that so, so interesting. So we've got Morpheus there interacting with these things. Now, obviously, this is all made up. None of this actually happened. But the idea of Morpheus seeping through has influenced comic books in the 1980s. Just before I jump to the comic books there, I'm going to say the other thing about the Sandman is if you haven't seen him, he's tall and pale, sometimes he has stars for his eyes. What's interesting is in the comic books and sometimes in the TV show as well, it's kind of referenced how different people see him, perceive him in different ways, which would make complete sense because if he is truly the Lord of Dreams or the God of Dreams, then he can be anything you want. Indeed, why is he a white man? But this is why I'm saying there's a brief leap before we quite get there. Because here's something else that we get to throw into this weird and wonderful mix. Let's talk about punk rock and fashion in the early 1980s. What? So, punk rock started in the 1970s. It was basically a response to the increasingly outlandish and decadent things like concept albums by Led Zeppelin, the glam rock of kind of everybody, and just the the weird showmanship, the family friendliness of the likes of ABBA. And so this was kind of like trying to strip it back and be dangerous and be anarchic and get those angsty teenagers, you know, how much can the teenagers really be bopping along to the Osmonds? Actually, a lot of them did, but, you know, that's not cool. So let's give them something that the parents really hate. And so the Americans are going to say the Goo Goo Dolls invented punk rock. And I'm going to say, well, well done to you, New Yorkers. But it was the Sex Pistols, okay? Now, I think I have made passing reference to them in the past. All I'm going to say about them is this. I absolutely get how important they are. I'm kind of proud how much trouble they caused at the time. And what's fascinating is if you watch the interviews with, like, the, the general media of the time, they look fresh and relevant to today. And you suddenly realise how long ago this was, the 1970s, because everybody else looks really old-fashioned, incredibly set in their ways. That's not to say that they were perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And what I'm also going to say is, I really don't like their music. I know that almost any guitar band after the 1970s are going to cite the Sex Pistols as some kind of reference, and I like a lot of those bands. But I don't like the original one. I'm going to say, you took it and ran with it in the right direction. So it's one of these things, okay, nobody is going to expect this sentence, but the Sex Pistols, like Shakespeare... I respect their influence, but they're not my idea of a good time. Okay, but one of the things about punk rock as it evolved is you had people having like the classic mohawk, the dyed mohawk, where they would literally pour sugar water. So basically mix sugar into water. When it dries out, it'll be hard and crystalline almost. How do you get a mohawk sticking up at 90 degrees from the rest of your head, apparently defying gravity? You're going to need either a lot of mousse, or maybe, So I know sometimes people used egg whites. So actually their hair kind of would have tasted delicious, and also sort of would have dissolved in rain, but they were unlikely to be walking around in the rain. And these mohawks quite often were dyed in bright garish colours. They would get like safety pins and stick them through their ears, and a lot of mascara was going on, perhaps black lipstick. And I'm just talking about the guys here. The point was they wanted to stand out to shock to change what people thought was acceptable in the world. And you can also argue, looking back on it, it was just your usual teenage angst, just perhaps turned up to 11, a reference that wouldn't have existed in the late 1970s, but I don't care because you all know what I mean, and that comes from Spinal Tap. But the point is this, 
like any kind of musical movement, it sort of split up into different areas. And so one of the areas that it started evolving into is a group of people who liked the mascara, liked the, the wild hair, but just found the music a little too tuneless. And maybe everybody was a bit too angry. And you know what? I just want to lie around and feel sorry for myself. And that, so we go from punk rock to goth rock. And goths are the granddaddies or grandmas of the emo culture of today. And even now you might be going, oh, emos are so last year or whatever. The point is that goths were big business basically back in the 80s. And clearly Neil Gaiman, I'm not going to say he was a goth, but clearly he enjoyed that genre. There are sometimes he's got that kind of look about him being quite pale with dark hair, a big massive pile of hair on top of his head. I'm not saying he's got a lot of product going on there, but if you want the poster boys of what is goth music, it's The Cure, okay? My sister-in-law adores The Cure, always has, they used to follow them around a bit, and The Cure, absolutely miserable songs, which for I think about 10 years, every single album they released sold better than the previous album. So this was not niche, it grew and grew. And I'm not gonna bother going into that kind of music, I liked a few of their songs. Friday I'm in Love was their chance to sort of prove to people, hey, goth music doesn't have to be miserable, but then they went immediately back to being miserable. Love Cats was kind of their breakout hit, which again was quite boppy, but actually most of their stuff involves staring at shoes and for teenagers to lie on their bed saying, why doesn't she love me? Or why doesn't he love me? It was the perfect music to lie there and feel like you're the only person in the world that doesn't understand the world and everybody hates you and I'm just going to stare at my shoes. Uh, oh, woe is me. Isn't the teenage years fun? It's also a little bit odd, therefore, that Dream would want to look like that. Why doesn't Dream look like a Greek god? Or if they truly are of the night and a bit more mysterious. But in the 80s... Goth was hot, and why not? You know, like I say, it does seem that Neil Gaiman has a certain love for that element and group out there. Fine, fair enough, he's a very talented man, why not? But they really double down on it in the comic book. So, for example, when you get a classic panel in a comic book, you'll have people talking, and to denote that, you get a bubble. And it's like a little V sticking out their mouth so we know who's saying it. And then there's a sort of semi-ovoid bubble, and so the border of it's all black, it's white, and then you've got the, the black writing on it. So it's almost like you're reading a little couple of lines from a book there. You all know what I'm talking about here, but what I find fascinating is just to really reinforce the darkness of the Sandman, he spoke in black bubbles with white writing. And also, rather than just having that distinct oval, the edges were almost like wavy. So it's kind of like, it sort of gives you an idea that they talked in a very different way. It's a little bit like Rorschach in Watchmen, more on that just in a moment, where you can just tell the way they sort of like use the lettering and font and stuff that he's kind of saying it through gritted teeth. So when it came to the Watchmen movie, they absolutely nailed that right. To the, Almost everybody agrees that Rorschach was a triumph in that movie because that was hard to necessarily put on screen and the voice in everybody's head, and this is the problem with books, People sound completely different to how you had in your mind. How do you please everybody? And it turned out it was such good art direction in Watchmen that everybody had the same voice of Rorschach in their head and it came into a reality when the movie came out. So I'm talking about the wonderful world of comic books already and I said as DC Renaissance in the 1980s. 
there is this sort of big debate about DC and Marvel, which one do you like more? I'm going to say, you're allowed to like both. I do. Planet Hulk is an ama is the absolute best story about the Hulk ever. And it's a really interesting story. And they take him to some somewhere a bit different from just Hulk smash. But also, I love Watchmen and various Batman things. And critically, what we get just after halfway through in the 1980s, in particular with DC, is we get two back-to-back, -back, utterly genre-defining graphic novels. And they are The Dark Knight Returns, which is the story of Batman years after he's retired. He's now 50 or 55, something like that. He's seen as silver-haired. He's old, but still big. And it's basically portraying Batman as somebody who's tried to quit being Batman, but Batman is an obsession and it drags him back. And the artwork is, is you know, this is Frank Miller. It's sort of scratchy artwork and it's very adult in its content, but also in its ideas as well. And it's an absolute masterpiece. And it is worth remembering that just, you know, years before you get The Dark Knight Returns, you have Batman still being relatively silly and things like that. If you like Marvel and DC in the year 1980, tonally didn't have a lot of differences. They had different stories and so on and so forth, and obviously completely different characters. But once we get into The Dark Knight Returns, it's, oh my god, this isn't for kids. Adults want comic books too? Yeah, it's sold by the truckload. And then basically, almost at the same time, we get Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' Watchmen which I've said previously, is basically the best 2000 AD comic strip that never came out of 2000 AD. Both of them had literally just left that British comic and moved to America, and in essence did the classic British thing of rather than bigging up something, let's just deconstruct it and point fingers at it, and basically turn it into things like a political allegory. And Watchmen was considered an absolute, again, to like genre-defining, certainly very adult. It's not suitable for children whatsoever, and yet it's a comic book. And it's the only comic book, when Time ran the 100 greatest books of the 20th century, it was the only comic book to make it on the list. So it's in there with the likes of Catcher in the Rye and All Quiet in the Western Front. An amazing statement to talk about the maturity of comic books. So you've got that coming out, and then... Shortly after that, you got Sandman, and in the late 1980s, it was a wonderful time to be reading comics because everybody was coming up with different, unusual, experimental types of comics, and DC leaned heavy into it. Marvel started to do it too, but they clearly were repeating the success of DC. But it's good news for everybody because everybody was pushing the boundaries at that point. So if those other two things hadn't have come out, it might well have been for Neil Gaiman, it's like, mm, that sounds a bit too edgy. Or, you can do the Sandman, but here are all the restrictions that you're going to have to do to, to carry it out, because we've got to keep things commercial, yada yada yada. So, yeah, the interesting thing about this is, it was just a great time to be alive and reading comic books. And also by now, we're starting to see things like the Batman movie, and... Basically, comic books, uh, and these kids who'd grown up reading comic books were now old enough to direct movies and write films, and we were starting to start to see a darker edge to all of these kind of things. And it's great to see that everything I've just mentioned has literally been turned into either a movie or a TV show, 
and all of them are well received. Love has been put into them. Budget's been put into them. The Sandman is not a cheap TV series. Apparently, each episode's costing something like 15 million, which is not the biggest it's ever been, but it's still pretty expensive. So, with that in mind, I did say, and I'm, I guess I'm going to finish up on, the wonderful world of a German chemistry. <laughs> Trust me, this is actually going somewhere. We've got Friedrich Surtener. Friedrich Surtener was a chemist. And I've mentioned sort of German chemistry in the past when I did my Narcos episode. And Friedrich uh, was uh, basically messing around with various different types of concentrations of opium and managed to create a synthetic enhanced version of opium, which he called morphine, because it seemed to send people off into a gentle, deep, restful sleep. And morphine, which obviously then gets later synthesized by biochemicals into something called heroin, you know, morphine is very addictive. I guess like a lot of potent chemicals, it needs actual proper medical supervision. Almost any kind of chemical taken in too much quantities can hurt you. But the reality is morphine is used legitimately right now for people with like terminal cancer. And in terms of pain relief, it is extremely good. And sometimes giving somebody a pain-free, drug-induced slumber gives these people the respite they need from the ravages of their body. And so we actually have Friedrich Surtener to thank for that. And we also have the ancient Greeks to thank for the name of it. So we have traveled into all kinds of different places. You might have guessed that we might have ended up talking about goths, but you probably didn't think we'd talk about German chemistry, maybe comic books, but also the theogony. It's just, I really recommend you have a look into that one. It's just sort of like, oh my goodness, this is, you know, you hear things like Batman Begins or the prequel or whatever. It really is basically the prequel of all the Greek myths that you know about. And so all of this, comes from the Sandman TV series, which I would recommend you have a go if go on. If you haven't seen it on Netflix, it did very well. A second season is going to be made. And I once again want to bring this all back to the attention of Simone Allen. Thank you very much for that. And as always, another episode coming soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. 
That's stamps.com code program.